Welcome to Culture Matters, a podcast exploring the intersection of faith and culture. Hey guys, it's me, Adam Hawkins here, your host, normally co-host, Elizabeth can't be with us today, which I'm sad about, but we do have... To Marcus Ragland. Who's here really better than all of us, so oh, thank you, um, and really, um, I, I, this show is one I've been looking forward to for a long time. I, if I, I admitted to Ty earlier, I'm a little nervous um, because of how excited I am, and I, my... Um, <laughs> broken mind gets those two emotions confused so um, we are really really honored and excited to talk to dr kurt thompson he is a psychiatrist an author speaker podcast host founder of the center for being known um, we invited him on the show to talk about his second book the soul of desire but would just cannot commend enough to you his book, The Soul of Shame, and his newest book, The Deepest Place, Suffering and the Formation of Hope. He mm. also has a wonderful podcast called Being Known. And then I don't know if it's as widely known, but a podcast that I really loved a year ago called Neurofaith, uh, as a mm. somebody who loves topics of the mind and brain mm. and neurobiology, um, talking to experts in that field about faith mm. and neurobiology and the mind was just, it blew me away. So without mm. further ado, welcome to the show, Dr. Thompson. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Well, Adam and Ty, it's great to be with you. Um, please uh, feel free to call me Kurt. I would I would love that. And uh, I'm just thrilled to be with you. And it's, it's an honor and it's humbling to be invited. Uh, and I look forward to our conversation. Awesome. Well, awesome. thank you. Well, let's, I mean, I, I think because there's so many questions I want to ask uh, at the at the uh, risk of being hasty, let's jump in. And I just want to ask first about Soul of Desire. What mm. drew you to write the book? And then mm. maybe for our listeners who aren't familiar with your work, what's the main thrust or main argument in Soul of Desire? Well, I, I would say uh, what, what drew me to it was uh, a, a number of things. Uh, it was a it was a project long in formation uh, that came out of as it turned out came out of uh, just you know where, where my my personal journey at the time was I was in a you know so a, a, you know just a challenging place and this started to emerge and this notion that when we started looking around at you know uh, we, the work that we do in the clinic with patients. It, you, we quickly see, oh, are, are we really just here to uh, diagnose diseases and treat them? Is mm. that really what it means for mm. us to be human? And when you uh, read the arc of the biblical narrative, you recognize pretty quickly that uh, even, even when you hear the gospel story, the gospel story is not one that is primarily just a story of God trying to fix problems. Uh, it is God reigniting his initial mission that you read about in the first two pages of the Bible. This sense that God has this mission of human beings uh, being like him by becoming agents of creating and curating beauty in the world. Hmm. That's our mission. Now, of course, you know, we've we've done our fair share to uh, kind of mess that up. And even in our attempts to fix our own problem, it 
you know, we, it's pretty clear that like we need an outside rescuer, mm. yeah. but it's really about coming back to this notion that we have been made uh, as people of great longing and desire. I mean, when, when, when you know, we, we, we come out of the womb into the world longing for things with, with deep longing, even as newborns, and that never really stops. And ultimately, this longing is for us to live into our uh, created mission. Like we were made to make artifacts of beauty and goodness and then to steward that uh, as we push and usher Eden further and further into the wilderness. We push out the boundaries of this. These are the first two pages of the Bible. And what we discover is that when we start to talk with patients about how actually you're not a problem to be solved, you're not a diagnosis primarily to be made so that we can treat your disease, Mm. not that we're not doing that, that when we recognize that you are an artifact of beauty that is waiting to be revealed, Mm. it completely... Uh, rewrites one's imagination mm. about how I even understand the nature of what my problem actually is. That this is actually what my depression, my anxiety, and so forth. This is my, I feel like my brain is not working right when I'm anxious or depressed. And what, what, to which I want to say, actually, your brain is doing exactly what it is meant to do under the circumstances that you've asked it to live up. And what we are here to do is to help you reimagine what your mission has been from the beginning. At the end of that, it will include necessarily identifying the places where trauma still lives and healing is required in order for you to be recommissioned to be on this path of creating beauty and goodness in the world. And it necessarily requires not just me doing this by myself, but it requires my being part of a community that will help excavate and archaeologically kind of help me reimagine mm. what my mission is while my imagination is working to catch up. Yes. And uh, in this way, as we say at the end of the book, uh, what we're doing really is that we're practicing for the heaven that's coming. Yeah. Yes. There are so many things to unpack, to just start unpack, maybe yeah. unpacking. Mm. And so, uh, okay, one, we talked about beauty. <laughs> We talked about mm-hmm. desire. We talked about mm-hmm. psychopathologies are not just treating us as problems to be fixed or as diagnosing psychopathologies and alleviating symptoms, but as uh, human beings formed in the image of God who have a mission and a purpose. How do we start seeing ourselves this that way? Yeah. So maybe just right. t- taking some slow steps through this together, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I mean, I I. I have to tell you, like, I felt like as I was reading and and even just through the introduction, I hit this brick wall when you asked this question, what does putting ourselves in the path of oncoming beauty have to do with the healing of our minds, the changing of our brains, Mm -hmm. uh, and the transformation of our world's most troubled systems? Wow, right? Uh, There's a lot there, um, Mm. and it's compelling. And so maybe and then this idea of confessional community there's a lot to get to i'm saying yeah. a lot of things <laughs> I agree. So, so maybe just taking them in turn you have a picture of beauty that's different than maybe just at least from a cultural perspective you know uh, th- than the on its face cultural term uh you mm. say it's not beauty isn't just a luxury in our world it's a necessity um, it's we need it in order to live our lives as flourishing beings to to image Christ. Okay, so backing up, what what is beauty? Does help help tell us what beauty is? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, you know, I, I, there are, uh, there are many people who are far, uh, smarter than me when it comes to answering this, you know, philosophers who, sure. uh, Roger Scruton, for example, the, the great, the, the, the British philosopher wrote a lovely little book on beauty that I would commend to our listeners. Mm. Um, I, and I, I don't, I don't so much, uh, define beauty as much as I would say we, we describe like the, wh- how do we know that we're in the presence of it? Right. And we would say, we, you know, we talk about these, these, the, that, it, that it evokes wonder within mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't, you know, uh, that, that's the first thing, wonder. The second thing is that it is welcoming. Mm. Um, beauty is not something that says, uh, no, you can't look at me. You can't have access to me. You, it, is, it is invitational. It is hospitable. It, it welcomes. And then it leads us to worship. When we are captivated by beauty, we we find ourselves in places where we are so astonished that we are our minds are drawn to this notion that there's got to be something beyond this. Like something like this doesn't just show up out of nowhere, out of nothing. And that I am privileged to be encountering this, whether it's a piece of music, whether it's uh, you know the oak tree that sits outside my window as we're talking, whether it is. Uh, a painting, no matter whether it's natural or, you know, human made, we, we have these three things. And, and recently, my, my friend Pepper Sweeney, who's the co-host of, of our uh, podcast, you know, he also said something that I think is really uh, important. He added a fourth W to this when he said it actually requires work. Mm. This is another thing that we see. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, you're, you're, you're coming around the bend on a hike and you are suddenly – struck by a landscape or a sunset or whatever. And you're like, well, I didn't really have to, I didn't have to work. I didn't create that. I didn't have to work, but somebody did. Mm -hmm. And there is a sense that when our, you know, my friend Maku Fujimura creates his painting, like he has to work at this. Mm -hmm. You have to, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to perform well as a, as a pianist, you have to work at this. There is a, there is a crafting of this. There is a work that is required. There is effort that is required in creating it. And then there's also the work that is required uh, for us to allow ourselves to be in the path of it. Mm. We are um, so easily trained nowadays. We are being trained to uh, be inattentive. Mm-hmm. We're being actively trained to be inattentive. And so the notion of being with a Mark Rothko painting, for example, uh, would require effort that is antithetical to what our culture is forming us into being, right? right. To sit with a Rothko painting, you're like, 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 like you know, for, which was my experience the very first time. Like, dude, like there's three bands of color. I don't get it. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, why is this in the National Gallery? Mm-hmm. Like, what, what make until you're with it long enough? Mm. To allow it to speak to you, mm. which is why we would say, you know, you know, we now talk about beauty as we think about it as a luxury. So we, you know, we put it in museums, and or you have to look at a photograph of it. But the whole notion that beauty is actually in your front yard, but I just don't see it. I, I, I don't see, it. or beauty is sitting across the table from you, right, uh, with one of your family members. But we're just trying to get through our day, mm. and so I don't see that, and so. We know that beauty is not a luxury, that it's a necessity. It's, and, and the reason we know this is like if, if we were to actually extract beauty from our world, there really would be very little, if anything, left of the material universe. The issue is that we are just so inattentive to it right. 
Uh, and this is where the work comes in. I have to actually uh, put myself in the path and I have to take the time to do that in order. And, and if I said, if I start saying like, I'm going to take some time every day to put myself before some form of beauty and just be with it and meditate on it for five minutes. What we then find ourselves doing is we are priming ourselves to see beauty in all kinds of places that we mm. otherwise wouldn't be seeing, whether that be in, you know, an object or whether that be in a relationship. And then we also get to where God is going with this whole notion that we talk about later in the book. And that has to do with how do we begin to imagine uh, beauty emerging from uh, carnage? Yes. Yes. And this is really what the gospel is doing. Like, the, you know, most, you know, if I, if, if, if I were to, yeah, I come in, you know, you come into your teenager's bedroom and you're like, no, I just want to like burn the thing. I just, I, I, just, <laughs> I, I just want, I don't like, I don't want to clean it up. I don't, it's just way too much. I, I don't see beauty emerging from this. We don't, we don't see beauty emerging from the gunshot victim. Hmm. We don't see beauty emerging in the Middle East. We don't, I mean, it's, it's so, the carnage is so overwhelming that all we can think about, how can we just get it to stop? Right. And, and we would say, you know, in Jesus, God comes to his world and he doesn't just say, how can we get it to stop? He says, we are committed. We are as committed as ever as we have been from the first page of the Bible hmm. to seeing this enterprise through to the end. Mm -hmm. And so in the same way that the God of the Hebrews, unlike the other gods, of the Near Eastern ancient world created without violence. He continues to do this when he comes with Jesus. Mm -hmm. He doesn't come like the Roman centurions. And, uh, and so that's what we are now commissioned and called to do. We are also called to see beauty in the middle of carnage and be present with nonviolence, but to be present in ways that uh, no other story in the world uh, inspires us to do. You have a statement early in the book. I think it's something like affliction or suffering is beauty in the making. And when I read that, I thought, I think there is a part of that that describes the gospel. Is yeah, that not Jesus? Yeah. You know, um, his affliction is the most beautiful beauty in the making. Totally. You, you, you also, I think just a couple of things in there, not just the mind expanding healing transformative power of the thing you just said which 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 brought out right emotion but this idea i i am struck by as i as we're talking now that to put yourself in the path of beauty and to create beauty is a radical yet attainable way of living in our modern age it is a countercultural way of living. You use the word unhurried often in the book, and I think about what we were just talking. The work it can take to put yourself in the pathway of beauty is to slow down and see it, yeah. um, to yeah. be unhurried, uh, and how beautiful that is. You oh, know? yeah. Well, it's first off, there, I don't want to acknowledge, this is part of the difficulty since we don't have uh, video, but <laughs> there was this... You got emotional mm -hmm. in in what you just shared in the hmm. the beauty of that, even in seeing <laughs> right. like um, 
there was a point in which we we reckoned with the the depths of despair and suffering in our world mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and looking to a God into uh, a gospel that uh, says there's there's still hope here. Mm-hmm. There's still mm-hmm. something worth, uh, to your point, right, the, the enterprise I- I isn't done. Um, mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. is, and that is like, that is earth shattering in a good way. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. it is, it, it speaks to what you write in, yeah, what a privilege. Not only do we get to read the words, but like, obviously this is, this is resonated um, in you. I, and it, it's made me think, I, I enjoy poetry. I've been trying to pick it up. I'm not great at it. Uh, but one of the reasons I realized literally the other day, I was sitting down and I couldn't write it. And I was like, um, you know, trying to think of this. And then nothing was coming. And I a thought came to mind. It was like, poets pay attention. And it's like exactly what you're, it's almost to the point where people may find you like aloof. Like, oh, like, why are you spending so much time on this thing that seems like it doesn't matter? Mm-hmm. Many people may have thought that of Jesus. And it's like, it's mm-hmm. actually mm-hmm. in the slowing down and paying attention, even though it's not like the the to-do thing. It doesn't seem really productive, but what comes out of that is like unarguably valuable. No one would, yeah. you know, you get anybody, whether it's film, music, right? All of the things that we we get ready to expound as you talk about the things that we create um, uh, as as those who bear God's image. And it's like all all of that done well, first starts with a, a slowing down and a paying attention mm-hmm. that we often just want to skip yeah. by. Um, and yeah. yeah, it, when we do that, it, it brings that about. It's, know, it's, yeah. it's funny as, as we were just, I thought about a funny anecdote. I lived in New York for a while. Um, I was, grew up playing in bands and, um, I, we had a really good friend who was an artist there, fine arts, mm. he was a painter and we were joking. And then we had another friend who was a writer and we were all joking about how, um, at the time, I think the app would have been Instagram. I don't know what it is now, but how mm. uninstagrammable real artistry is. Mm. We all think today, uh, uh. you know, you that it's sexy and glamorous and fun and all that. But like he was like, oh, really, what this looks? Like? Yeah, you get to walk into the gallery where people are having a glass yes, of wine and enjoying yeah. and all. And he's <laughs> like, here's what this looked like: weeks and weeks of sitting in a non-air conditioned storage space because that's all I can afford and sitting there painting and retrying or like my brother and I sitting in an apartment and like that doesn't sound good that doesn't sound good you know are the are the editing and the refining and the iteration of the process of the writer and um to talk about that process in and of itself as you're talking Mm -hmm. I was thinking about that Ty just the slowing down the unhurried the often ordinary work that and and that has some pain involved that mm-hmm. often mm-hmm. Uh, results in something really beautiful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, a yeah. question in light of that um, to define another term as we continue because we uh, skipped it. Yeah, we should have started yeah, there. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll use this term desire a lot. But, so you say in the book, uh, desire does not exist merely as some independent phenomenon to which we respond. It is also something that, like any good gardener knows, must be pruned. Uh, which I feel like gets to that, right? It, there's a, a work involved. It must be shaped and will be shaped by whatever practices, habits, or in Smith's language, liturgies we develop, liturgies we practice, whether we know it or not. Um, and so I want to I want to give you opportunity to give a, a definition of uh, how we can think about desire, because e- even as I was approaching it here 
and I've recently been in Ecclesiastes. I feel like with both of you mm. and that book that together, so often when I think of uh, uh, the scriptures uh, speaking on desire, the passages that most readily come to mind are like the desires of the flesh and you know f- fleeing youthful lust, and it's in this uh, uh, connotation of um, being inherently negative. And then to read a passage in Ecclesiastes where it's like, follow the desires of your eye. And I was like, wait, what? Like, um, <laughs> and uh, But right, it begs the question, maybe if you can kind of uh, wind back and, and help our imagination, like what what is a helpful uh, way for us to be thinking about uh, desire as, you, as we see it in the scriptures and as you use it in, in your book? Yeah, I, you know, I've I've been I've been so deeply helped uh, and formed in recent months by the work of Tim Mackey and the guys at the Bible Project. Right. Yeah. And one of the things that that Tim talks they they talk a, a great deal about has to do with the nature of how um, the Hebrew writers, the writers of the Hebrew Bible, uh, they they write the Bible uh, with the intention they have the expectation that the reader is going to have to work for things. Mm-hmm. They're not spoon feeding the reader things. And, you know, I, 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 uh, I, I, you know, as I, as I've heard Tim talk about that, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so helpful mm. because there is a sense in which it gives us n- not unlike other uh, projects of creating beauty, like the very act of being formed by the scripture in and of itself is an artistic endeavor mm. that we're being formed by things we have to work at. And here's one of the ways for me that it began to shape, like reading the first two pages of the Bible. The first thing being that we are, yes, okay, we are made in God's image. Well, what does that tell us? Well, to be made in God's image means that we operate like God operates. And one of the things that we also read on the first page of the Bible is that God, you know, he's, there is a pattern in which things in the first five days are made. There's a pattern. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God said, let the sea separate. And they were separated. And God said, and God said, and God said, and one would have thought, that you get to the sixth day. And if it had followed the pattern, God would have said something like, and let there be humankind. And there was humankind. But that's not the way it works. Hmm. There's a pause and God has, you know, the, the divine counsel. He brings everybody into the room and says, let's, let's do this. Hmm. Let's, let's like, there is an act. And what do we see? Like, Oh, you see that right on the first page, God is a longing God. Hmm. God is a God who himself desires things. He has, he has long, God has longings and we are made like God. So we would say the first thing that we see about longing is that it's, it's an attribute of what it means to be Godlike. Hmm. That's the very first thing. Hmm. And so, oh my gosh, I come out of the womb and I am longing for things. And those physical appetites that we talk about in the book, and then, then it expands to this, Longing to be seen, soothed, safe, secure. And that then enters into this longing to make things hmm. as a way to even deepen the relationships that I'm already also making, in which we're seen, soothed, safe, secure. And so this whole platform extends geometrically as Eden is extended into the wilderness. That would have been the, the plan. Hmm. And of course, if part of this is that, you know, in the very beginning, there's also the, this this pruning. And, and we would also say there is a certain wounding. Like, for example, we say, where is the first wound in the Bible? And it's on the second page, mm. right? And it's God gives Adam like a chest wound, right? There is a wound. If he's going to create, he's gonna, if he's going to split the human, 
there is a wound, Hmm. but the intention of the wound, Hmm. there is a longing that includes wounding, Hmm. but the intention of the wound is answered with poetry and song. This is Hmm. Adam's response. Wow. That's how we know the desire is on a path. We have poetry and song Hmm. in the middle of the wound. You get one page later and you have a very different kind of wound. Long before the fruit gets eaten, there's a conversation, mm. and the conversation is intended to disintegrate, mm-hmm. to decreate. It's intended to devour, not to create. Long before they even eat any fruit, the very nature of the conversation, how that takes place, and so when we, I, I'm, I'm trying to make sure that I'm answering this tie. That this sense that desire, then uh, God gives them a choice, right. He gives them a test as a way to prune their desire, as a way to refine their desire. They have to, you know, is are you going to do things on your terms or are you going to wait for me to give you things, which is going to require time, effort, longer. But your capacity to become a people of wisdom and goodness is more durable because we're going to take the, the things that are the most durably beautiful in the world, take the longest time to make. Mm. I'm going to wait to be given that as opposed to taking it, which is what mm. they ultimately did. And, and so uh, we find that these practices of imagining first that desire is uh, what it means to be godlike. And then I want to be curious about what am I desiring and for what purpose am I desiring it? And what are the ways that I need to refine that and to prune that in order for that desire to be maximally made durable? Mm. But I don't do that well. I cannot do that well by myself. And this is where I need the context of a community and not a community that can keep me accountable. Right, right. It's not a community that's going to like make me feel bad if I even think about looking at pornography. Mm-hmm. The question is, like, imagine, uh, what if Adam and Eve had said to the serpent, wait a minute, we're, uh, we're not really sure about this conversation. We'd like to wait until later in the afternoon when God comes and the four of us can talk. <laughs> we're going to wait for this. I'm going to wait for a community. And when God comes, we notice that You know, Adam's afraid that God's coming to kill him. But what if God's really wanting a conversation? God now wants a real conversation about what just happened here Mm -hmm. for the purpose of pruning. What if Adam had said, look, I really screwed this up. I know you're probably going to need to talk to her, but I screwed this up. You gave me you gave me the command not to eat and my job to to let her know that somehow I didn't do my I didn't do my job. Well, do with me what you will. You can imagine God pausing and saying, hey, can we have another divine counsel? Mm-hmm. And we can all talk about like, oh, my gosh, did you see what this guy did? This guy just owned his own stuff. Hmm. He didn't throw her under the bus. He didn't blame anybody else. What a beautiful thing. We've had this conversation about beauty, what it is, how, what, what's it look like maybe in our life. But we needed to back up and, and talk about desire, which, which we started to do there. And then and then. trying to see um, what we need to function in the world in the way that God created us, which is this pruning of our desire, right? Yeah. But Mm -hmm. 
I, so there's two questions there because you started to get into something about community. Mm-hmm. In the book, you call it confessional community, which I, which again, it's not accountability community or shaming community or unboundaried community. There's something mm-hmm. about com- confessional community that that's that we need. But I want to talk mm-hmm. just before we get there. I think yeah. that's an important question. But before we get there, I I do want to talk a little bit more about like where it goes bad. Um, there's where mm-hmm. it goes mm-hmm. bad in the Bible. And mm-hmm. we see ourselves in that. But I love, as you talk about the problem of desire hmm. in the mm-hmm. book, there is this thing about desire being connected to need or what we most want. Maybe that's a better way of putting it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, w- w- you said it, safe, soothed, secure, something else. Seen. <laughs> seen. seen. Known, mm-hmm. seen, yeah. loved. Um, mm-hmm. And we come out of the womb needing that almost as if we were made for that kind of love and community Um, and where it can often go wrong. Let's introduce words like trauma. Let's introduce words like pain. I don't know, disorder, desire, however we want to, where it can often go wrong is when those needs that are within us and, and, you know, built into us um, are not met are neglected Um, when those needs and desires, as we get older, uh, come into Mm -hmm. contact with a world that offers counterfeit forms of, of meeting them, right? Mm. Um, the diffusion of desire, right? We talk, you talk about that in the book. So maybe we could just peel that back. Uh, you introduce concepts of attachment theory and attachment, uh, therapy. I don't know if that's the right way of putting it. I'm not an expert in it, but could you just maybe start to unpack a little bit of that for us? Um, and then we can jump into some of the fixes within a confessional community. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, um, the, the nature of how we come into the world, you know, looking for someone looking for us and, and that we, this, and this is a, a feature that I mean, we, we, we take with us to our grave. Um, we are always looking for someone looking for us and the process whereby which that longing, and that gets translated in these four ways of being seen, soothed, safe, secure, which helps us develop secure attachment. But I, I would also highlight not in the absence of things that are difficult. I mean, to be seen, soothed, safe, and secure does not mean that like you never get your nose bloodied. Right, right. It does not mean that you never get your feelings hurt. It what it means is that to develop secure attachment means that I'm growing up in an environment in which I actually have lots of encounter with unpleasant emotional states. Mm. And when I have some relational rupture, what leads to secure attachment is the effective repair of those ruptures. It's not the absence of rupture. It's the effective repair of rupture, which is why it's it's a curious thing. Like, what would have happened if Adam had actually taken God seriously when God comes and asks him the first question in Genesis chapter 3? And so we, what we see is that desire gets tangled up, especially when ruptures are not repaired. And, you know, we're, we're all, you know, we're, we're, we, we can all cite our first mother and father, Adam and Eve, and then our great grandparents and our grandparents and our parents as delivering us into a world that is imperfect Mm. and in which mistakes will be made. And we're all going to have our own stuff that we're going to have to contend with. And at some point, very early on in the game, shame becomes part of this relational matrix. And so my desire gets entangled with that. 
And so my desire to create beauty and goodness in the world in a way that is meaningful and generative and integrative Mm. now becomes bent and misdirected as a way for me to use that process, use desire as a way for me to reduce the distress of my unfinished shame business, of my traumas that I encounter, I can find that, oh my goodness, uh, you know, pornography uh, sustains something for me or working 70 hours a week does something for me. And so, and we like to say evil does its best work in the middle of good work being done. And so it's, it's always the case that anything that we're doing that can be, that is going to be good, evil will be looking for a way to misdirect that, to misuse that, and to entangle us in shame, connecting that, such that we can then find ourselves using that very good thing in ways that are, you know, not so helpful. I mean, I mean, case in point, uh, you know, there are uh, there are lots of organizations these days that are doing a lot of good work to um, eliminate. Uh, you know, sex trafficking. Sure. Uh, my friends at IJM and people that you know, I'm right. sure like they've been, they've been at this. This is really great work. And we, we look at those people who've been mistreated in that way. And we would say, oh my gosh, that, that is a horrible thing. R- rightly so. It, it, is a, it is a horrible thing. And we can kind of categorize that whole enterprise as being bad. But when sexual mistreatment happens in the church, mm. that is a completely different kettle of fish for us mm-hmm. in our minds mm-hmm. and it's a completely different kettle of fish not because of the nature of how violence is perpetrated but because of where it happens mm. it is this sense in which something that is very good the church mm. right mm-hmm. that is intended to do a particular thing we don't expect the mob that are running these sex rings to mm-hmm. do good things. Mm-hmm. We don't have any expectation of that, but we have a very different expectation of this with the church. And so this becomes this place where the trauma that takes place in those contexts, the shame that gets tangled with our trauma and our desire there is so much more painfully difficult for mm. us to travel through and so, uh, and, and, and then we would say, oh, that's an example of what happened in Eden in Genesis 3. There was, I mean, Eden is intended to be God's church, right? It, that's, right. It's, it's God's temple. It's God's, right? It's, it's where heaven and earth meet in Eden, in the garden. That's where it's happening. Mm-hmm. And it's in that very place that this horrible thing happens, right in the temple. Mm. This horrible thing happens. And so the whole notion that, uh, God is having to, like, he's, he's built this temple, and he's put his priests in the temple, and now his priests are engaged in misconduct, mm. in the very place that was supposed to be the source of the next extension of beauty and goodness in the world, which makes it that much more difficult and painful. And so we, what we find is that the trauma— that we experience and the shame that is entangled with our longings and desires emerges in a context of intimate relationships. Mm. That's where our trauma and our shame take up residence. They take up residence in the context of intimacy, which is what we were ultimately made for. We were made for intimacy with each other. 
And so at the same time that my symptoms that when I know when my when I come in to see, you know, the the mental health professional with my symptoms, uh, this is where, you know, the, the work of what we are about uh, is, is important to define appropriately because I come in with depression and I think, look, oh, I've got this set of symptoms. And could you please, Dr. Ty, could you please just do what you need to do, work your magic medication wise or therapy wise so that I can no longer be depressed? Hmm. Because I think that's my problem. And you start to talk to me about things that are not about this thing called depression. Mm -hmm. My depression is an outgrowth of this. You start to ask me questions that make me nervous. Because you ask me, oh, what was it like growing up in your house? And who are the uh, – all these questions that are not just questions about information about my family. What's happening in the room, even as you ask me the questions that on first glance just look like an exploration trying to get information, is you – are drawing closer to me. Mm -hmm. I don't even know that you're doing that, but that's exactly what you're doing. You are the gospel. Mm. You are the representative of Jesus who's coming to dwell with me. But my problem is I remember not explicitly, implicitly in my body. I remember that it is intimacy, which is where all the danger lies. Mm -hmm. And yet you're going there and like i'm no, not trying to go no there. no no <laughs> yeah yeah no i'm not i'm not thinking these things consciously but my trauma mm -hmm. is what is the leading edge for how i relate to people so mm -hmm. often even if it's clothed in all kinds of faith and religious language and right. appropriate behavior and so forth and so on my trauma is out front of everything watching the landscape looking to see if someone is going to try to get close to me, because if they do, I know this is not going to end well. Mm. But there is no other way. And when Jesus comes to us and comes with this intention of intimacy, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we do to him what we did in the garden. Like, mm. I can't tolerate the music. Like, I tell people, like, look, our biggest problem as humans is not that we're not good at loving other people. Like, you look around, you know, we're not very good at loving people. That's pretty obvious. <laughs> but our bigger problem is that I'm even less capable of allowing you to love me. Right. That's good. I can't give what I don't have. And consequently, the reason that I don't love others, the reason I don't give others love is because in the moment that I'm not doing that, I'm not doing so because there is a part of me that is in the room that has not yet allowed itself to be loved because it's too terrified. I want love until it actually shows up. Yeah. And when it shows up, it places all kinds of demands on me. Mm -hmm. Like, I want you also to be kind and patient. I'm like, <laughs> then why did you give me children? Yeah. <laughs> right. All, 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 all the things. And he said, well, because we want you to learn how to be loving and kind and, and so forth and so on. And so we tell, like, we tell therapists this, what, what Dallas Willard once said to a group of therapists. We said, look, our main job as therapists, our main job is to love the people that we are with, mm -hmm. recognizing that when we come into the room to do that, it's going to scare the living daylights out of them. Mm-hmm even if they think that's what they want. And this is what it means for love to come and look for beauty in the places of carnage of people's trauma, because the way this beauty is created, it's done so intimately, which is 
just it's again it's a reenactment of genesis 2 right god doesn't create humans from a distance he's in the mud he's breathing into their nostrils this is an intimate interaction and it is both the most terrifying and the most liberating uh, work we'll ever do in our life hmm. bring in um bring in to that i think you've i think you've already said what it is but maybe making it explicit yeah um love comes in and looks for beauty in the places of people's carnage there's a type of community that happens in that you're calling confessional community in the book could you maybe just describe or flesh that out a little bit for us first thing to say just for um uh nomenclature and, right uh, and terms. Um, what we're not talking about here is uh, a community that is um, whose purpose is to talk about its sin. In Protestant communities, we often think about, and sometimes even in Catholic communities, we use that word confessional. We think I'm just there to confess sin. But the original use of that word, its purpose is I'm confessing, I am naming what is true about the world. Mm -hmm. uh, the confessions of the church are things like the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed. These are things that we are naming that are true. We say that the work that we are doing is the work of telling our stories ever more truly. Mm. And not by that, not just the facts, as opposed to, it's not like we've been lying all this time, but we want to say that we want to we want to tell our stories more faithfully, uh, more faithful to what is actually true about the world. And that includes encountering the gospel. I have a story in, in, in the most recent book um on suffering and hope i i just i talk about there's a part of me uh that not not all of me not even most of me but there is a part of me that uh lives believing that i am unwantable mm -hmm. and that part will show up in the room unannounced and i don't like it but when it shows up there are times when i just can't get it to shut up where it's telling me you know they don't want you but more importantly, you're not wantable, mm -hmm. and 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 that is a that is a part of my storyline that I have believed. Is it true? Well, it is true that I believe that, mm -hmm. but I'm going to need to name that in order for someone else to help me imagine something differently. Mm. For that part of me to have an experience with others. My unwantable part to have others say, no, I want the unwantable part in the room in order for us to be able to be with him so that he can have a different experience than what he's experienced in the course of his 60 years on the planet. And this is what when we are in these confessional communities, we tell people uh, when, when I had a conversation with a patient yesterday who's who's agreed to start, who's agreed to, who's going to join one of these uh, communities in a couple of weeks in which I said not only is the community going to be helpful for you, but I think you're going to be helpful for the community, mm. but you're not primarily going to be helpful for the community because of your wit and your wisdom. Mm. You're primarily going to be helpful for the community because of your vulnerability. Mm. And of course, people really don't have much of an idea about like what that means. Like how, uh, if, if you think about helping someone else, you come with your cooking skills or you come with your surgical skills or mm. your legal skills or your teaching skills. Like I'm, coming to you who needs my help and I'm going to provide that the whole notion that I come to you in my vulnerability and that's going to be helpful for you. Like I don't have a category for this, mm -hmm. but this is good Friday. That that which is most helpful for us, our rescue 
requires crucifixion. Now, it's not crucifixion only on its own terms. It's crucifixion in the light of what comes on the third day. But if but I can't get to Easter if I don't first enter into Good Friday. Mm. Come on. And so it is the vulnerability that I bring that allows me to have a different experience when other people look at that vulnerable part that is so tangled up with shame, and they give me a different embodied experience in that moment. I'm telling that part of my story. And I'm looking around the room and I don't see scorn. I don't hear tones of voices. I don't see body lamp. I'm experiencing people who are hospitable to this part of me that I'm not even hospitable to. Mm -hmm. This is Jesus welcoming the parts of me. This is the body of Jesus at work. It's kind of like the woman with the bleeding problem in Mark 5, right? She has this idea too. Like we, we, like we have ideas of like what healing is supposed to look like. She came with a plan. Right, right. Right. It's like it's like commando healing. I'm going to get in, get the job done, get out. Nobody's going to see me. Nobody gets hurt. And then, you know, he stops the crowd and like everything. And, and then like this is when all hell breaks loose for her mm-hmm. because she thought that she had an understanding about what she needed. And he's basically saying, you have no idea what you need because your problem is not mostly about your bleeding. Mm hmm. Your problem is about everything else that you're not even consciously aware of that you need to name. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to name it. And I'm going to name it in front of all these people that you've been hiding from. And I'm going to have you hear me call you daughter. I'm going to have you hear me call you faithful. These are the areas that she needed to hear that she didn't even know that she needed to hear. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't happen if she's not willing to be at least vulnerable enough. But here's the other beautiful thing with this. Uh, people don't understand, yeah, okay, I'll be vulnerable. And they have this sense that my vulnerability, if I tell my story and my vulnerability is met with hospitality, that healing can emerge from me. But the other thing that is so powerful about this is that when I reveal the vulnerable parts of my story, what I don't see coming is that my story is now going to start to touch the stories of other people in the room mm-hmm. where their vulnerability also lurks but they have also been keeping it in the dark. Mm. And I come to discover that someone else will then say, oh my gosh, I can't believe you just talked about that because you're bringing something to my mind that I haven't thought about since I was 10 years old. Mm -hmm. That I realize I've been walking around keeping buried for the last 30 years. And so one's vulnerability creates space for the healing of others, not just for the healing of themselves. And this is where we see that this is all, this is the work of the Holy Spirit in the world. Mm. That the vulnerability of one leads to the opening of windows and doors into vulnerability of others, so that the Spirit is using the entire community, what I call uh, the physics of relational mass effect. That if I'm just sitting with one person who is with me with sympathy, that's one thing. If I'm sitting with eight people mm-hmm. who are simultaneously in that space. And in my vulnerable sharing, I start to see that there are two or three other people who are now experiencing healing because of my articulating my experience. This is what we mean by the work of the Holy Spirit in using our vulnerable selves, our weakness, for the purpose of God's strength being put on display. Mm. That's such a a palpable picture. Something beautiful, as you were talking and expounding on the woman with the issue of blood and how it made me think of us being uh, in God's image and, and 
co-creative with him. And there's a sense even when we uh, read of the miracles, right? So it's like, oh man, well, Jesus was God and he could do this thing. And it's like to stop and pause and consider that maybe even to her, uh, just what you articulated, like the um, the nearness and the intimacy being equally, if not more miraculous of like, wait, you, I'm what? I, Dude. Um, and it's like that we get to, we may not have the, you know, the magical touch, but we can participate in that part. Mm. Um, totally. That we, that we are those that can look at, at each other, like you say, in our vulnerability and say, no, this isn't true. But like you are valuable. That is, um, that is powerful. And it also, um, man, that it magnified like the the imagination and vision of of even that that verse that you quoted at the end, right? That our God's strength being made apparent in our weakness, and like that being so much of our ministry and mission to one another um, in these one-on-one, small, seemingly insignificant moments that actually help bring about healing in, in all it, of us. Right. It's the... Um, yeah, yeah. It's um, on earth as as it is in heaven. It's heaven bringing. Yes. That's the practicing heaven, I think. And so yeah. maybe to as we start to sort of wind down, maybe that taking us there to what, what you're describing or what we're talking about right now, mm-hmm. this idea of being vulnerable, inviting others into vulnerability, how it has the, you know, um, that mass effect you talked about, which I love being in communities where we are able to to bring our shame and let that be destroyed by um the type of intimate love that we're describing Jesus's love and then and then uh maybe just talk about for, for us how is this a practice of heaven and then the beauty making like i love this idea of giving people an imagination about yes. their pain you know, the, the 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 nihilistic, the nihilistic version in the world is that pain doesn't have a purpose. Our wounds have no direction. There is nothing to do with our wounds except, I don't know, try to heal from them, let time pass or something. But in Jesus, all of this is moving us towards something beautiful, yeah. which you you bring up the the beautiful picture of is it Kintsugi? I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, Kintsugi. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So yep. maybe maybe you could talk about practicing heaven and 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 tie that that example in. Yeah. Well, this uh, the the Japanese art form of Kintsugi. Uh, it's an ancient art form, and fundamentally, it is what happens when. Uh, a T-bowl, this is how it got started, a a T-bowl is fractured if it it breaks into a number of pieces. Uh, The artist takes those pieces and first joins them together, but along all the fracture lines, the artist then will paint some pressure, will will apply a precious metal, whether Mm. it's gold, platinum, silver, such that when this is completed, you look at a bowl, you can go online or listeners can go online and then see evidence of this, uh, examples of this. Uh, the bowl is so much more beautiful than it was when it was originally created. And uh, the painter and my friend Mako Fujimura talks about this a great deal. Um, this is really what we are becoming. We bring our fracture lines, we bring our pieces of broken pottery into these confessional communities. And we are together 
reassembling them. Mm. And we are applying precious metal to the fracture lines. Um, I think one of the, uh, I think it's noteworthy that we tend to talk about our pain. Mm. Uh, and the, as you rightly said, uh, Adam, like the, the kind of the nihilistic way of thinking about it is to say, well, pain has, there's no purpose for pain and so forth. And we would say, well, actually, it's important for us to begin with acknowledging <clears throat> that in the material world, like the material world itself has no purpose. Only people have purpose. Right, right. That's good. And so the question is, how do any of us purpose our painful experiences? Mm. How do any of us do this? And what we're saying is that the God of the Bible finds us in our worst places. And even in those places that most of us would want to just get rid of, he's saying, no, I'm saving everything that is willing to be saved. Everyone, you know, as, as, as Dallas Willard once said, God is more than happy to allow anyone into his heaven who can take it. <laughs> and, and, and this gets back to this sense, like, what does it mean to take it? What do you mean? Like, you think, well, that shouldn't be that hard mm. to take, except would we be willing to tolerate a conversation? We, we then reference this in the last chapter of the book and Jesus question in Matthew chapter 12, this, this notion of goodness, uh, you're all going to have to give an account at the day of, day, day of judgment. I'm thinking like, I just have these pictures of these old tracks in the 1970s, these evangelism tracks where, you know, they have pictures of you with God in front of billions of people and your <laughs> life is up on a big screen and you're being shamed for all the things that you did, you know, as a, as a 11 year old. Mm. Um, um, uh, and, and, but what if, what if the kind of conversation, what if the, the accounting that we're going to have to give is a conversation in which Jesus, like he tried to do with Adam says, so tell me about, tell me about that Tuesday when you looked at pornography, tell me about that. Mm. And of course I'm, I'm assuming just like Adam that he like, okay, I'm, I'm screwed. <laughs> like, okay, fine. The purpose here is to make me feel really bad. Congratulations. Hmm. Uh, what if he's like, no, 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 wait, like, no, I really want to know, like, what were you desiring? I, I want to have a conversation with you about this. What was going on? Hmm. What were you looking for? And what was that about? And what was that about? And what, where did you imagine me to be in that? Mm -hmm. So it sounds like you were having a hard time finding me in that moment. Say more about where all that came from. Now let's talk about this thing over here. What was that? Gosh. And, and what if he's would have the kind of conversation that we have in these confessional communities mm -hmm. in which he's genuinely curious about this, not because he intends to punish us as a result of our answers, but because he is really working to turn us into himself. Mm-hmm. And he is not satisfied with any of our sophomoric answers, with any of our hiding, with any of my, you know, my toddler-like or pre-adolescent answers to these things. He's like, please, I want you to grow into adulthood because I want you to come into my heaven. But if you don't like grow up into this, it's going to be hard for you to take it. Mm. And so we, I start to think, oh my gosh, like a conversation like that with Meek would last a long, long time. Mm -hmm. And he's like, fine, it's fine because we have eternity. Like I'm going to be doing this like you know 33 billion times. It's, I mean, <laughs> you're just number whatever you are. Like there is this <laughs> sense in which what we're doing in these what we're doing in these settings is that we are practicing the uh, we are we are entering into the practice of becoming professional human beings because if we are going to this is what Paul says. Look, if you're going to rule angels. Like you have to be ready to do the work. Mm -hmm. 
And that's not going to work very well if you've got all these things in all these rooms in your basement that you have closed and locked off where you're hiding all these things that you're afraid that God can't tolerate. Mm. And then you won't be able to tolerate that. So we want to get this out of the open so that we can get you ready for the work that you're going to have coming at you when the, when the new heaven and earth arrives here. Mm. And in this way, we would say that God takes us far more seriously than we take ourselves. Mm. Um, and not in ways that are primarily about punishing us, but in ways in which he longs to finish the work that he begins. Mm. The idea that Jesus is the most complete human that's ever lived, and he's wanting to complete, make us whole. That, that Kintsugi metaphor, that through the type of vulnerable, loving conversation we just heard, those fractures are not only being mended, but there's a way in which they're highlighted as beautiful somehow as we're put back together. The sources of what were our shame can somehow become part of a whole picture that makes us beautiful. And the idea that there is a way we can begin to practice that now. Oh, how freeing, how liberating, how amazing. What an adventure. What a life to live. What what a um what a beautiful life to live. And we can count it all joy. We can count it all joy. Yeah. Amen. Man. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Well, thank you, Dr. Thompson, so much. I I I just again am so thankful for this time with you. And yes. and I know I'm gonna have to go back and listen myself several times just yes. to digest the depths. Um so thank you. Thank you for joining us. Man, Adam and Ty, thank you so much. It's um I tell people it's it's always good to be in a space where to be with other people who know that following Jesus is hard to do. Mm -hmm. Like it just, it's not like, there's a reason why he said the gate was narrow. <laughs> I'm like, dang. <laughs> but we also like to say, um, you know, the brain can do a lot of hard things for a really long time, as long as it doesn't have to do it by itself. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I'm just, I'm really grateful to have had the chance to spend the last hour with you guys. And it's been a, a rich time and uh, it's been a real uh, highlight for me. And so thank you so much for inviting me to join you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for listening to Culture Matters. This episode is produced by Chelsea Conway with editing and support from The Good Podcast Company. If you're a regular follower of the podcast, we'd love to hear from you. You can message us on social. Check the show notes for more information on how to best connect with us as well as connect with our guests and ways to support their work. See you next time. <laughs>